welcome to the Volva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So we're going to talk to Dr. Carolyn Mitchell, who is a gynecologist and director of the Vulvovaginal Health Clinic at Mass General in Boston. Hi, Dr. Mitchell. Hi, Amanda. So can you tell us, we're going to talk today about yeast and recurrent yeast. So do you think you can diagnose yeast over the phone? Uh, No, I would say that's a hard no. Ideally, for diagnosis of yeast, one would do something more objective. So microscopy, if it's available to you, culture, or even the PCR-based test, something that is more objective because both patients and clinicians often overcall yeast. And so we end up treating yeast that is not there. Do you think it's reasonable for them to try once without looking at someone and then look at them? Or should they always be looked at first? I think once, especially that patient who calls on Friday afternoon and is going away on vacation, that's a very reasonable time to try because most treatments are quite low risk and you're not going to hurt anyone. But after that one time, I really, patients deserve an evaluation. And I think we should always be aware that people describe the same thing different ways. So itching to someone could actually be a sign of trichomonas or herpes and not yeast at all. And how do you diagnose recurrent yeast? What's the definition of recurrent yeast? So recurrent yeast, according to both the CDC and the BASH guidelines, is four or more episodes of proven yeast in a year. Um, Some papers describe it as three, but again, most of the guidelines say four or more in a year. And then how do you treat those patients? So you can either, you can do a couple different things. You could certainly continue to treat just every episode, but many patients would like something to prevent the recurrence, in which case what we consider suppressive therapy with either weekly oral fluconazole or a weekly topical azole um, is often what we do, and I tend to use the oral therapy. And then how, how long do you treat them for? Usually six months is um, the recommended duration of therapy. Yeah, and that's from that New England Journal paper by Jack Sobel, right? Exactly. And so then there's a pretty high recurrence rate after that, isn't there? Right. Between 40 to 60% of people will recur, which is why I call it suppressive therapy and not curative for people. And so when the patient, if the patient's well on their weekly fluconazole for six months and then they recur, what's your next step? So if they're well and then they recur, you could do one of two things. You could try retreating with fluconazole and continuing suppressive therapy. If they recur while they're on the fluconazole, then you would want to think about uh, development of fluconazole resistance and try and evaluate that through culture-based testing. And how's, what's the longest that you feel is safe to leave someone on suppressive fluconazole? So fluconazole, especially at the doses we use of 150 milligrams or 200 milligrams once a week, is overall a really well-tolerated medication. So I will sometimes have people on it for a year or more, um, although I do try and have people go off and at least test every six months or so. 
when I have people on for a year or more, that's when I'll check LFTs to just be sure there's the fluconazole is not having an adverse effect on hepatic function. And then can you tell us a little bit about what the most common yeasts are and what it means when somebody has non-albicans yeast? Sure. So as you allude to, Candida albicans is the most prevalent species of yeast, accounting for 80 to 90% of infections. The next most common is Candida glabrata. And then Candida paracelosis, tropicalis, Lusitania, or cruzii are also a smattering of those in the non-albicant species. Candida paracelosis is very sensitive to fluconazole. Candida cruzii is never sensitive to fluconazole, and the others kind of have a mishmash of sensitivity. Glabrata is only about 50% of isolates are sensitive. So it's very reasonable, whether if you know it's a non-albican species, it's reasonable to try fluconazole because it may work. If it doesn't, then we need to move on to other types of therapies. And those would include vaginal boric acid, um, 600 milligrams nightly for 14 days. Sometimes the topical azoles can work, um, especially a a longer course, a 14-day course. And if neither of those work, then we move on to the even more esoteric, for us in the U.S., compounded vaginal flucytosine and or amphotericin. Yeah, those would be, those get tough. Yeah, yes, they do. But do you ever use um, boric acid for longer than the 14 days? I've seen reports of using it different ways, like several times a week afterwards for maintenance or five days a month if it's a near their period, that kind of thing. So for yeast, I tend to, if I'm going to do something and it's a fluconazole-sensitive yeast, I'll do fluconazole. If it's non-albicans or it's uh, fluconazole-resistant albicans, then I often use boric acid in a suppressive way similar to how we use fluconazole. Um, So once a week, twice a week, there's not a lot of data. It can be irritating for people, so I do try and avoid daily use for longer than the two weeks. And how do you counsel people when you're using it? So the most important thing to say is that boric acid is a poison, should not be used orally. And that means that probably there is really not great safety data, but probably good to avoid or having someone perform oral sex for a good 48 hours after using boric acid. And then what I tell people about anything I prescribe them is if it causes more irritation, probably you should stop and give me a call and we'll figure out something else. I think that's very good advice and keeping it away from your kids and your pets. Are there any modifiable risk factors for recurrent yeast? So this is an area of great debate. The number one thing people think about is oral contraceptive pills And the epidemiologic studies are really quite split on whether OCPs or estrogen is a risk factor for recurrent yeast. I kind of think birth control is pretty important. So I tend not to take people off OCPs. um, But if they're thinking about an IUD or thinking about some birth control method other than OCPs, it would be reasonable to try that switch. Other things that people ask about are clothing choices There are some old studies about pantyhose increasing the chances of finding a positive yeast culture, synthetic underwear 
again, there's sort of mixed data here, but I think loose clothing certainly makes the skin and the skin irritation associated with yeast feel better. And so I think for comfort, loose clothing, cotton underwear is a good recommendation. And then finally, diet people ask about. And there, there's really not great data. And so what I suggest to people is really don't go on any extreme diets because you're already uncomfortable from the yeast. So why be miserable because you can't eat anything? If you want to try and eliminate one thing here or there, that seems appropriate. But there's not great science to say one way or the other. I agree 100%. It's amazing how many people are on, they want a diet to fix it. No, the no alcohol, no sugar, no right whatever, wheat. No fun. No fun. <laughs> um, what do you think about probiotics to prevent recurrent yeast infections? So this is another one of the great myths um, out there in the land. And in the lab, lactobacillus species do absolutely antagonize yeast. But in the vagina, most often when we see people with yeast, we see tons of lactobacilli right there alongside the yeast. And so I think what we see in people is very different than what we see in the lab. The studies of probiotics for yeast have really not shown any benefit, nor have they been well done. And so I think the biologic plausibility is limited and the scientific data is limited. And so I think probiotics for this are a waste of money. There are other over-the-counter things that are sold in some countries like vitamin C for the vagina. Have you seen any of that being used and any evidence for any of it? So the vitamin C studies are mostly for recurrent BV, and they're interesting. The methodology is not fabulous. And interestingly, the biologic theorized mechanism is that it changes the pH. And actually, the pH in the two arms of those studies was exactly the same. So I don't love those studies for BV, and I don't see, again, any biologic plausibility for yeast. And most of the other things that are out there, the tea tree oil, garlic in the vagina, yogurt in the vagina, all of that stuff, again, there's like a kernel of biologic plausibility in the beginning, but in actual, how do they work? They mostly don't work and just cause vaginal irritation. So um, my vote is no for any of those. So with the best evidence being for fluconazole pretty long-term, sometimes in recurrent people, do you worry about drug resistance? I do, especially because we're starting to see it more and more. Um, and one of the, Dr. Sobel, again, who's done a lot of the work in this area, looked at his experience in, in his clinic over 10 years and found most of their drug-resistant isolates were in the latter five years after they had started using more suppressive fluconazole. And so I think the potential for fluconazole-resistant, even Candida albicans, is quite high. And because of that, I do think we should try and have people take the fluconazole when they're taking it, take it well, and then stop and try and be off. But I, I'm seeing more and more um, fluconazole-resistant yeast, and it is very challenging to treat. So in the same thread, a lot of people, sometimes you see yeast on a PAP or just on asymptomatic patients who are having swabs at their gynecology screening or family health yearly screening. Do you need to treat if you see yeast on a gram stain, but the patient's asymptomatic? You do not. In folks who are not symptomatic, there's really no need to treat. 
I do think it's worth asking people if they have symptoms because not everyone speaks up when they have vaginal discomfort or they think it's just normal. But many of us, good 20 to 30% of us just are colonized with yeast in the vagina and don't have any clinical problems with it, in which case you don't need to treat it. So the specific questions you asked them regarding symptoms would be itch, abnormal discharge, burning, that sort of thing? I would really say, you know, are you having any vulvovaginal discomfort at all? I tend to leave it pretty broad because I find that people describe the same thing quite differently in different words. So I really try and be pretty general. And then if they say yes, probe a little bit more to see what types of symptoms they're having. Do you ever spend time explaining to people that it can just be a normal colonizer and not to worry? So I tend to not test people who aren't symptomatic. I try really hard not to get that answer um, (laughs) because I don't want to spend that time, um, you know, explaining the test that looks abnormal, but is really fine. So I, again, really try only to test symptomatic people. I guess, yeah, I guess sometimes it just shows up on your cytology screening, whether you wanted it or not, right? And as the charts become more and more open access and patients are reading their own, I feel like you sometimes end up having, even if it's communication by writing on the results, you have to explain, otherwise they'll Google everything and maybe self-treat even if we don't, because a lot of these drugs are over the counter. Yes, also true. So do you have any last take-home points for people about recurrent yeast? So I'll say the thing that my strategy for treating yeast in general, which I think is not the same as many people, is I really go for oral therapy over topicals. And again, I tend to see people with a lot of recurrent yeast who have been self-treating with a lot of things and have a lot of irritation. And so I would just remind people that the topical azoles can be quite irritating for folks who are already irritated. And so this is one area where I tend to do more oral treatment than topical, especially when folks have really severe symptoms, um, because I, I think the topicals can exacerbate the discomfort. Thanks. That's very helpful. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. And again, that's Dr. Carolyn Mitchell, the director of the Vulvovaginal Clinic at Mass General in Boston. Mm-hmm.